Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. The shotgun agreement between two partners has to be the most brutal form of capitalism out there. Brutal and raw and pure. I mean, you know the way these work between two partners. If you want out and you decide that your partnership just can't work anymore, you basically make an offer to buy out your partner. And your partner has a decision to make. They can either accept your offer or they can in turn force you to accept your offer and buy you out at exactly the same terms. It forces a degree of transparency, a degree of uh, respect among partners that uh, is hard to replicate in any other business negotiation. And the person you're going to hear from next is Kim Addis, who went through a shotgun agreement with, of all people, her ex-husband after a divorce. Um, The story goes on many different directions, but one of the key lessons that I think you'll learn from Kim is that a shotgun has two parts. One you might get the business, but the other side of that coin is you might end up selling the business and you have to be ready for both outcomes. Here to tell you the rest of her story is Kim Addis. Kim Addis, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hello, I'm happy to be here. That's awesome. So now you just sold a company called Upward Motion. Tell us a little bit about this company. What did you guys do? So uh, it was a simulation-based company. We used to build simulation-based assessments for the purpose of helping companies make better uh, hiring, selection, and recruiting decisions. Oh, man, this is such a hot area, right? So you hire the great salesperson. You think they're going to be awesome, and they're a disaster. And you hire someone who's kind of meek and mild-mannered, and they're fantastic. So how do you? is this the kind of thing you're trying to figure out you know, what attributes to look for, what personality characteristics? Is that right? Well, that's exactly it. So we ended up testing really hundreds of thousands of people just to help companies make better decisions. And was it mostly around salespeople? Um, It wasn't always around salespeople. A lot of our work was sales related, but some was around leadership um, and technical or um, analytical skills, that type of thing. So everybody listening is running their own company and they're going to want to know, okay, before we get to all this stuff about you selling your business, what is the one attribute they should be looking for in a salesperson they're about to hire? Hands down, the most important attribute, whether it's a salesperson, a technical person, an engineer, a leader, it doesn't really matter. The most important attribute is emotional resilience. Grit. Grit. It's the ability to bounce back from adversity with speed and agility and leverage the adversity. That's what you're looking for. I love it. That has nothing to do with selling a company, but it's a fantastic insight. I appreciate you sharing it. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the growth of this company. So tell us about how you started and then, and then over the 10-year period, what, what that growth trajectory was like. Okay. So um, I, let, let me kind of uh, paint this picture. I was pregnant with my first child. I was in my early 30s 
and I was lying in bed one day. I woke up early in the morning and I heard this ad on the radio from the YMCA saying that they were wanting to sponsor women who were interested in starting a business. And I was really pregnant, like pregnancy and me, we didn't, you know, go well together. I grew you know, I look like an elephant. And I thought, wow, I really want to do that. How cool would it be if I could get sponsorship? And so I submitted a proposal. I had an interview and they looked at me and they said, how do you think you're going to start a business while you're pregnant? And I said, I'm a very driven individual. They said, okay, fine, we'll let you win. Um, but I had a master's degree and they said, here's the deal. Only if you promise to train our class in one thing that you're really strong at. I said, no problem. And so I started this business and the idea at the time was to work with high school students and teach them life skills. And as I kind of put my business plan together, I realized who the heck is going to hire me to do that? Um, I'm an unknown. There aren't that much uh, uh, budgetary uh, approvals for these kinds of projects. And so slowly my business idea morphed and I went from trying to make a sale to a school to uh, actually getting funding from the government to take on co-op students and enable them to teach life skills or more specifically job employment skills to their peers. Fantastic. So there, where, where did so, it go from there? So where it went from there is we would go around from high school to high school playing out. Literally, we're like on stage like actors playing out scenarios of employment scenarios for young people that would go wrong, like terrible disasters. And then we would pull a member in from the audience and have them replace one of the actors and play it out more correctly. And that was the training. We were training them to deal with conflict and tension and difficult employment situations. Really, we were creating simulations. And that morphed into working with businesses, correct? That's right. We, I, we realized that we could take this concept and actually move it to an online scenario. So we started to build online simulations. And uh, our first simulation that we built was called the real estate simulator. We built this simulation to help real estate brokers identify who a better or a, the best real estate agent would be for their companies. What we discovered is they're really not interested in screening. What they're interested in is recruiting. They want to hire as many real estate people as they can because it's commission-based industry and we really don't know who's going to succeed in real estate. And so At how least, did the simulator help real estate brokers so, identify people? Yeah, so brokers would take this simulation and they would put it on their website with a with a message that would say, are you interested in a career in real estate? Try our real estate simulator to see if this is a career for you. And they would go on and they would fill out this literally 45-minute test, a whole simulation from start to finish. It would come out with a report. The broker would get the report. The broker would then reach out to this random person and say, I got your assessment results. You would be awesome for a career in real estate. Let's talk. And, and so, so was, of how uh, many people that took the 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 test would get a favorable result. It wasn't just a veiled recruiting tactic. There was actual real oh, assessment they were, data. Here. Yes, it was a real validated assessment with true authentic results. 
And so what would some of the questions be in the simulation? Um, uh, well, let's say you were taking the simulation, you would literally be taken through the process of sales from building rapport all the way to close. And as you went through that process, your actions would be tracked and then compared with the top performer. So there were a million kind of twists and turns in the storyline. Uh, for example, you would be dealing with a buyer and the buyer said, no, you know, that price is too high. So how would you react? Or you would be dealing with a seller and they'd say, no, there's no way I'm selling my house for that rate. Um, forget it. I'm going to go work with a different real estate agent. So how would you react? And so what was the business model you were working from? Were these brokers licensing this technology from you? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. They were licensing it and they were uh, they were paying a monthly subscription fee to put that product on their website and we were supporting them in learning how to use it, how to understand the results, how to leverage the report to interview the candidates, and how to market the product so that they would get as many recruits as possible. And so what was your revenue up to when you decided to sell the business? Yeah, it was $1.2 million. So you had $1.2 million of these, this recurring revenue coming in from these brokers all around the world, the country? That's right. Fantastic. Fantastic. And so was of the $1.2 million in revenue, uh, was that mostly the assessment, the real estate simulator assessment? It was. So we had some income coming from other places, but the real estate simulator was our, let's say, our flagship product. And, you know, I would go to every single real estate conference known to man and we would have a booth. And I was just, I was considered a very, very effective networker, knew everybody who I needed to know. Uh, that would make a difference to my business. So what was the trigger that made you want to sell this company? So I had three partners. One of them is now my ex-husband. Say no more. Yeah, that's the short version. <laughs> <laughs> well, give us a longer version. Did did you you went through a divorce and... And so so we were in business together. We were really good business partners, uh, actually. We really played different roles. He was more on the operations, finance, technology side. I was on the sales, marketing, uh, building the sales team side of things. And together, uh, we were quite a formidable team. Uh, when our marriage fell apart, we actually thought we could continue working together, but things got really tense. And uh, just walking into the office was very difficult. The tension was off the charts. And honestly, it was just eating me up inside. And finally, I said, I, I can't do this anymore. And we attempted actually to uh, buy it out from, from my husband. You and the other partner. That's right. And we how did that go? Uh, really badly. So what happened initially was we gave him an offer and the offer was an offer to pay him out over like a five-year period. And he said, what, are you kidding me? I'm not even entertaining that offer. What was the, what was the valuation you were giving him? Uh, granted, you were going to pay him over five years, but what was the, what were you valuing the business at? Yeah, he, he, so we had, um, again, it was three partners. He had 44% of the business. I had the, uh, another 44% and the last partner had the rest. And so, and so he ahead. wanted 1.2 for his portion. So roughly two and a half million. He thought the business is worth. Exactly. And what did you think it was worth? Well, I mean, I wasn't there to debate its value. I was trying to figure out what I could afford. And he knew, I mean, we have kids together. He, he knew my financial situation. So it was about, you know, trying to do what was best for all parties included 
um, and specifically my family, my kids, my, you know, like I can pay what I can afford really. And so where did it go from there? You, you tried to negotiate with your husband or ex-husband at this point. Yeah. And that fell apart. So, so he basically said, I'm not entertaining this, uh, forget it, you know, go back to the drawing board. And then, um, and then, you know, I tried to find a partner who I thought would be able to alleviate the burden. And I did. I found a partner and they came back and they were willing to pay him what he wanted. But then it was a question of merging the companies together. And given their revenues and their profitability and given hours, what they were offering me was absolutely horrendous. It was uh, they looked at it as a fire sale. They looked at it as, you know, this poor woman who's in dire straits and we're kind of going to take advantage of her. And that didn't feel good to me. And at the last minute, I pulled the plug on that deal. And he got really upset. So he was going to get what he thought the business was worth around... 1.2, right. 1.2. And, and you were going to get what? Um, I was going to get a percentage of a merged company. Um, so I was going to get going to go from 44% to something like 14%. And that was a very, uh, uh, it was unacceptable to me. But and, pre presumably the merged company was a larger company, no? But that's the thing. It wasn't actually. Given their profitability, um, it wasn't. It just wasn't. So the numbers didn't add up. And I just felt really cornered, really uh, taken advantage of. And I felt like I'm not going to go from one bad situation to another one. And I just, I just said, no, I'm not doing this. And I literally, I pulled the plug at the final hour. So, so now you're batting 0 for 2. Where did you go from there? So then he said, you know what, just like, give me a shotgun clause. Do you, is everybody familiar with that? Do you know what that is? Well, I think it's a good idea for you to describe it just okay. in case so, those aren't, aren't yeah. familiar with it. Yeah. So a, sh a shotgun deal is when um, you make an offer and if they don't like the offer, they give you the same offer and they buy you out instead. And so you, you – and it forces you to think through your offer. Uh, right. Because you may be having to accept the same offer that you provide to, exactly. to, to somebody. Now, um, let me give you kind of a little bit more. It was this company I felt was my baby. I gave birth to it and he joined me a little bit later on. And like I was the face of the company. Everybody associated it with me. It was like really um, my, my child in a way. And so I knew like he just didn't want to be there anymore. And so this was really about giving him an offer that would allow him to just go away. Um, and to be honest, like I didn't want to go to my parents or my family and ask for money. I had a house and I, you know, I, my last option was to mortgage it. I didn't want to do that either, but I said, fine, I'll do that. And I uh, will figure out a way to make this work so that I'm not asking for money or depending on anyone. I'll go to a bank, I'll get a loan, and I'll work it out somehow. And again, like it was a huge stretch for me personally. And so we gave him a shotgun deal uh, and we offered him $800,000. So you offered him $800,000 for 44%. Yeah. yeah. So and your valuation he, was closer to 1.7. Right. And he – and he – had I think forty eight hours to respond. So you gave him forty eight hours. So now, as you as you came up with that offer uh, of eight hundred thousand dollars for forty four percent, the implied valuation of I guess it's I'm doing I'm doing the math too quickly. It's around a million seven. Um, 
how did you how did you figure it was worth 1.7? I mean, I know you said it was said- a bit more than 1.7. It was like close to like even 1.9 around there anyway. Okay. But the but the thing, how did I, I it wasn't I never did a matter very well in math. But. Yeah, it wasn't a matter of valuation. It was a matter of what I felt um, I could afford to spend. And it was a matter of, you know, like, look, we have kids together. I have to continue living. You know, he's my ex-husband. He has those kids. He has to take that into account. Um, the other point of it was, as we grew our business, we got a lot of help from um, my family members. So it was like taking all that into consideration, but really it was, what's the price that I could afford that I believe he would be willing to take and move along with his life? And you decided that was $800,000. That was $800,000. And Kim, um, when you came up with that number, I mean, and this is the essence of a shotgun, how comfortable were you accepting that in return? I mean, did you think that he might say, okay, yeah, sure. Um, um, I was at that point, a hundred percent had conviction that he would take the deal. So you, so, you didn't really think that there was a chance he'd turn around and say, sure, Kim, here's 800 grand. I'll take your 44%. That's right. Never wow. thought of it. So you gave him 48 hours. So you gave him 48 hours. And what he ended up doing was going back to the partner that I rejected. And he ended up teaming with them, getting the money and buying me out. And I was shocked. So he basically called your bluff in a way. Not in a way, completely. He called my bluff. And so... It wasn't even a bluff. There was no bluffing Sure, that's the right choice of words, but you're right. It was, he called it. And and so what was your reaction when when he said, okay, I'll I'll give you 800 grand for I felt like my world came crashing down on me. I literally had to pack up my office with tears streaming down my face, the whole entire staff around me, pack up my stuff and uh, walk out the door as he held the door for me. And let me give you a little bit of context. Um, The building where my office was is owned by my family. So uh, that was just, it was just unbelievable. It was just one of the most devastating, shocking moments of my whole life. Wow. So where did he get up? Where did he get the money? So the, the partner, he got the money from, yeah, from that, those guys that I brought to the table to buy him out. And, and did you get $800,000 in cash or did it get it over time? Paid it over time? Um, how did I get it? I think I got it in, well, I got a check. Yeah. I just got it in one shot. And you were asked to leave the building immediately. I was asked to leave. I was asked to leave the building, and he changed the locks. How does it feel today to talk about it again? It feels okay. I mean, right now, physically, I'm sitting in that same building in my same office that I originally sat in all those years ago. So I'm back in the same premises uh, because it's a building that's owned by my family. A week later, he was evicted from that very same place. Um, and you know, it's 11 years later and he and I are friends and we raise our children together and we've come a long way. I mean, it was a tough, tough time. Did they move, did he move the business elsewhere? Obviously he did. He had to, he had to, he had to find a location. He had to, you know, he had to take off. He took, he took my office furniture from my corner office and moved it to the other place. I mean, it was just an unbelievable unbelievable experience, very traumatic at the time, and really very formative. 
And I mean, as you look back now on the entire experience, starting from the first offer right through to the second and then the third ultimate shotgun, what, what, what mistakes do you think you may have made going through it or what things might you do differently if you had a mulligan? I think for me, one of the uh, the, the lessons is that just because it's stressful doesn't mean I can't handle it. And so for me, the big thing was the tension in the office. Now I can live with tension. It's not such a big deal. I, I don't take it as personally. I don't. Um, I don't absorb it the same way as I used to. I was younger at the time. I just couldn't handle it. Now you want to be tense, be tense. It's your deal, not mine. You know, so like I've changed quite a bit in my perspective and my fortitude is much, much stronger. So what would I do differently is that just because he pressured me to make a deal, now you can pressure me. I still don't have to make a deal. If you want to get out, you go buy, find a buyer. Why do I have to find a buyer? You make me an offer. You know, like that type of thing. I just, I would have played it differently without feeling the stress of the moment and feeling like I had to come to the table solving the problem. He wanted to go. He needed to find a solution, not me. Interesting. And and ultimately, you were the one who who basically proposed the shotgun in the in, in the third scenario, the one that ultimately... No, he did. He oh, did. he did. Yeah. So he came to you and said... Um, he said, give me a shotgun. Like, yeah. make me an offer. And was there any part of you that wanted to push back and say, well, if that's something you want to do, why don't no. you make me an offer? At the time, no. it just wasn't your headspace. No, because I was inexperienced. I was stressed out of my mind. I was terrified. I was dealing with kind of the emotional stress of... A marriage that exploded. I was suddenly a single mom. Um, I'm running a business. I'm supposed to be a leader and I can barely contain myself. Like there were so many elements happening all at the same time. And all I wanted, all I wanted for him was, was for him not to be in my office space. Just like go away. Don't be here. How would you describe the emotional sort of journey you went on after selling the company, uh, to, to today? Uh, could you sort of characterize some of the highs and lows? Yeah, I mean, it was wild right after. It was like, honestly, extraordinarily devastating. And then I slowly understood that I am not my company and I'm still not my company. And that even though it was, you know, I mean, I called it my child, my baby. It wasn't a child. Um, it, was, it wasn't a baby. It was a, it was a concept. It was a creation. And um, I have learned over the years that you know, right now, if my company were to be sold, I would just go do the next thing. And and so my attachment has changed. Um, I give it what I have and I'm totally passionate. And, and I, you know, I give 100% to what I have. But I know that um, my my essence, my, you know, I am not my business. I think that's the biggest lesson there. And the other thing is that Honestly, everybody experiences blows, and I certainly did. I've experienced many, and I have, and I know that I have a great deal of strength, and that um, at the end of the day, like I can, I can easily dust myself off and continue on the way. And I've learned that over and over and over again in my life. And so, the the falls don't hurt as badly. Back to grit. Yeah. The um, the check is a big check. I mean. It's not Bill Gates big, but it's still a big check. Did you go buy yourself any treats? Did you did you treat mm -hmm. yourself at all? No, 
no. Like, I mean, for me, you know, looking back, I I lent a bit of money to people that, you know, looking back probably wasn't the best idea. Um, I I didn't really blow my brains out. Um, I'll tell you the kind of the conclusion of the story is that it turns out that I I made an error. And if you ask me what the error was, I probably wouldn't be able to describe it to you. But I made a, a critical error in how I structured the deal. And that error cost me $300,000 in tax uh, debt that I discovered uh, several years after I sold my company. And so, you know, I'm merrily rolling along and uh, about seven years ago, I get a notification from Revenue Canada that I owe them $300,000. And so, I mean, I've had lesson upon lesson upon lesson and honestly, always, you know, you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off and you keep going. So this is important. Now, a lot of the listeners uh, listening to this are not going to be in Canada. Here in Canada, I happen to be located in Canada too. We we have uh, the construct of a capital gains exemption um, for the first portion of capital gains. So was it it that you were that you were applying uh, for that capital gains exemption and they somehow decided to uh, to disallow that exemption? That's correct. That's exactly right. Thank you for clearing that up for me. You see, so, I'm still a little naive. It, well, no, I mean, uh, you're not an accountant. So why, you know, this is stuff that usually the accountants take care of. So, so what, do you, why was it disallowed in your case? Um, I think that what happened was the lawyer who was uh, putting it all together asked me, you know, again, remember the terms were were under the construct of a shotgun clause where I believed that I was going to end up with the business. And so he asked me about this, this, you know, how to structure it. And I don't think I fully understood the implications. And I think I just blew it off at the time. And so uh, I, you know, I, I made a, I made a huge mistake, a massive mistake. In the case of, in the case of Canada, it probably comes down to the fact that there's you you can buy assets and you can buy shares um, and they're treated differently from a tax planning. Again, I don't want to d- d- you know that's uh, right have the conversation get down into the weeds of you know yeah. Canadian tax law. But I think the lesson here is critical, and I'm so glad Kim you brought it up for our listeners. Um, this is you know selling a company is not a DIY project. It is the most important transaction of your life, most likely, certainly one of the largest. And it is one in which you want a, a, a deal lawyer and a deal accountant. And, and when I say a deal lawyer and a deal accountant, um, that often is not your day-to-day lawyer. It's often um, your day-to-day lawyer, the person that incorporated your company, may have the experience to be your deal lawyer uh, that has uh, you know, deal experience, selling company experience, corporate law um, but they may not be. And so really vetting their experience and, and, and exactly the same thing with your accountant. Your accountant who does your annual tax return may not be the right accountant to structure, particularly if you're using trusts and other sort of more complex uh, uh, tax planning constructs. You may not you know, be well served by your day-to-day accountant. Um, it may be better to go to someone who specializes in these sort of estate planning slash um, business sale accountants. Not to get too far to that rattle, but it's such a good point you bring up, Kim. And I'm so glad, uh, not glad that it happened to you, but at least glad you could share it. Well, you're 100% right. I mean, um, 
you know, there are certain, there are certain experiences you go through in life and it's so much better to have someone who knows what they're doing by your side and have really good, strong representation and someone who could just keep you relaxed, keep you calm, keep you even keeled, keep you making decisions that are truly in your best interest. And I did not have that in place at all. Wow. Well, the business now, the sale is behind you. Uh, what are you up to now? What's what's your now? Well, I, I'm a serial entrepreneur. Couldn't keep me away. So I uh, I run a another company called Frame of Mind Coaching, and we coach executives, leaders, entrepreneurs, people who are highly highly driven, who are determined to live an extraordinary life, make a difference in the world, and really achieve uh, massive goals. Frame of Mind Coaching. Where people, where can people reach you, Kim? Frameofmindcoaching.com. And for anyone who's kind of interested, take a look. We have a, an assessment on our front page that allows you to kind of take a little bit of a survey and identify where your frame of mind sits at this point in your life. Kim Addis, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.